Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for yet another action-packed episode and interview. Uh, we're going to get right into it. This is uh, We have Dylan Gill on board again uh, to discuss the Church of Spiritual Technology, and I thought we'd really dive in and, and really just take this podcast and talk all about this topic and kind of get it all out there. And Dylan Gill is the perfect, perfect guest to be talking to about this because he is uh, a former staff member, as we have discussed in earlier podcasts, from the Church of Spiritual Technology. So he's not only a former Sea Org Scientologist and a former Sea Org member who worked literally at the highest levels of Scientology, um, but he is a former CST staff member. So, Dylan, first off, hi, welcome to the show again. Thanks for doing this. Hi, Chris. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Absolutely. So, why don't we just uh, kind of <laughs> dive <laughs> dive right into it here? And um, <laughs> got a that's right. Got a home going. <laughs> exactly, man. It's perfect. And like I said, I uh, I appreciate you doing this regardless. So. Yep. First off, let's get into CST. Uh, it's been discussed before. It's been talked about on Tony Ortega's blog. I think it's even been brought up on ABC News in the past and uh, on uh, Leah's show has referenced it. But for people who've not seen any of that, don't know about it, or are coming into this fresh, what is the Church of Spiritual Technology and what's your basic background with it? Um, well, geez, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Church of Spiritual Technologies, it's been kind of covered a bunch. Um, and I think the, the thing with Scientology is there's always a real story and then there's a shore story, kind of. So that plays a lot. It's, it's always hard to answer a question directly because there's so many little things at play um when you think about what how you presented yourself in it so what like what i was told when i got recruited to it and then when i got up there and then what i was told and then how i was what i was supposed to tell other sea org members and what i was supposed to tell local community members what i was supposed to tell local contractors um it was the general gist was the same that they were preserving the technology for all eternity. So okay. basically that was the general gist to everybody. LRH archives in Scientology was um, there to preserve the tech. If you were talking about it to a local person who uh, lives on in Crestline or whatever, you worked and you just, you were a religious um, archival organization. And you, okay. and you didn't really All right. mention, that's how it was described. Right. You didn't mention LRH. You didn't mention Scientology. You really didn't mention any of that. But if they were, if you were asked, you didn't deny it. Oh, that was what I was going to ask is because I thought, well, you know, if somebody asked me, if, if I ran into some stranger somewhere and I, and they said I was part of a religious archival project, I'd be like, really? What's that? Right. Yeah, exactly. What? That's so unusual. Tell me all about it. Who do you work right. for? What church? What's this all about? Well, yeah. and it's, you know, the nuances are different when you're in the Sea Org and you're out in the regular world. And when you're out 
in the regular world. So yeah, you have a normal conversation, but in the Sea Org, you don't. You, you, everything is kind of guarded and steered towards keeping control of the conversations. Right. And, and not answering, like, it's like your TRs. You, you don't, you know, you don't have to acknowledge, you don't have to answer, you can answer a question with a question, you know, you don't have to kind of do those things. So you're kind of taught to deflect and to, you know, just give general knowledge. Um, right. I think partially for fear of getting in trouble personally, um, for being what they would say is out security, um, and partially for keeping the short story or the PR line of the of our organization at the time, which was we kind of wanted to keep to ourselves, but we're spending all this money in the community and, you know, we're doing all this and everybody knows that the local papers talk about it and, but you don't really acknowledge it. So there's sort of that deny plausible deniability, I guess. Is yes. Yes. <laughs> well, it's actually quite interesting how much you can get away with, with people by doing some of those Scientology techniques. And that's not, of course, only in Scientology. I mean, intelligence official, you know, agents and stuff are taught this stuff as well. If you don't, you know, a no answer, answer, and right, right. election, misdirection, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's how the basic premise of it was, was um, what I got told when I first got recruited was you're being recruited for an archive project. And I didn't really even know anything about it. And I was up in CMO CW in Clearwater. Right. So, That's a very good point that the people inside the church don't even know about this, really. I mean, they kind of do now. But it, for a long time, I mean, I was surprised to read uh, when I was reading the Wikipedia page about CST because I wanted to see what kind of broad knowledge is out there about this that's right. not on Tony's blog, not on Leah's show. What right. would anybody find if they looked for this? And that was what I pulled up. And it said that David Miscavige never uttered the word Church of Spiritual Technology until the year 2000 in public. Oh, sure. Um, well, and that's why, like, when I hear about anybody saying that there was this crossover between Scientology or the Sea Org and CST, I was, it, it really didn't ring true to me. Um, because what I understood when the corporation was um, assembled was that there, it was assembled with um, a bunch of lawyers and then a few, you know, notable people. Um, in the Sea Org at the time, like Norman Starkey and a few people like that. Um, so it was assembled as, a, as kind of that whole idea of an umbrella corporation where you can't ever really get to all parts, the center of the church and hit it through the heart. You know, if you sue Abel, Abel can go away, but it doesn't really affect the church on a day-to-day -day basis. If you, right. you know, if you sue, so it's an entity, but the way it, it's not just an entity so that they can be protected, it's an echelon kind of thing. So you can never really get the trademarks. You can never, excuse me, you can never really um, grab hold of one certain piece and say like, wait a minute, you're using these copyrights or trademark. Like we had them. So even if somebody sued RTC, that could all go away and the trademarks are still in place and everything's still great and everything can still move forward. So exactly. Let's, let's actually talk about that for a second because a lot of people aren't gonna necessarily understand why trademarks are suddenly coming up. Um, could you explain 
you know, there's there's a three, there's a triumvirate, there's a there's a triad of of organizations that basically are the core of Scientology. Church of Spiritual Technology, Religious Technology Center, and Church of Scientology International. Could you explain what the relationship is between those? Well, CST is the holder of all the trademarks and the copyrights. And they have an agreement with RTC. This is all basically, it sounds like there's all these corporations and members like exchanging and doing stuff. And But really, it's just all on paper with lawyers. Exactly. So it, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not like... Because it, it's going to sound like there's all these boards approving and all these members saying, okay, well, we bequeath the copyrights to Religious Technology Center, and then we'll, for $1, because, you know, and it's it's kind of like selling a car to a friend. You know, you have to put something down as the bill of sale, but you're kind of giving them a deal, and the car might be worth three grand, but you're giving it to them for 50 bucks or something like that. So you got to kind of look at it that way. Um the the way it basically works to my knowledge um and i was i've never had this told to me i've always just been a part of it so i could be off base a little bit but um is the owners the trademarks and um copyrights were transferred to cst when that was um organized and that was basically done in part because of the warsham case um where the Church of Scientology in California was attacked and almost completely taken down in one failed swoop. So this was kind of a, a reaction afterwards. And, and LRH wrote a policy about the, like the, I think it's, I keep wanting to say it's the umbrella policy, but it could be something different. Um, but that basically explains it, putting an umbrella over everything and, and making it um, untouchable. So CST leases out the, trademarks and the copyrights to RTC. RTC then allows CSI to use them or the Church of Scientology International to use them to disseminate the technology of, and I think that's the big difference is one is dissemination and one is archival. And then the Religious Technology Center is kind of like the middleman that it, he's almost like the logistics person that like, buys and sells the, you know, oh, I got a truck and you got to go to Chicago. There you go. You know, they're kind of, that's what, they're like a police force there to make sure nobody abuses the copyrights, that kind of, and CSI has no control over any of it other than to disseminate it and get the money in and then get it up to the top. Exactly. So it's, yeah. It's, and it's sort of the whole, keep it compartmentalized. So even when you're in it and you're managing it or where you were, you don't really get the whole piece. You think you, I mean, when I was first in the Sea Org, I thought the flag service org, you know, they were just using the tech and it was all theirs and theirs to use. And there was nothing even to, nothing to see here, you know? So as you climb higher and higher up, you realize there's all these things that have happened. And th this is Scientology reacting to it in order to keep doing whatever they want. Right. It's kind of like a bad kid that's like you you chastise them and they go and sneak around and do it anyways. They don't really you know, it's, it's that they don't care about authority so much. And so they're really not playing by the rules, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. They definitely are into making their own rules. If any of the regular rules in the real world are going to get in their way. 
Right. Well, and, and anything that does get in their way is looked at as an evil intention, not right. just some random thing that's like, well, sorry, that rule's been around forever. Like, look at the judicial system. You know, like, yeah, it's flawed. Yeah, we could fix it, but it's kind of been around forever. And to go back and change everything is going to be complete. So Scientology's reaction instead is that you're doing it to me on purpose and now I'm going to hurt you. Or I'm exactly. going right. and deceive you and you don't matter anymore because you're against us. That's right. Um, that's right. So and that's, that's it. You know, it, it kind of I just just because you just said it and it sort of triggered something. I wasn't going to mention this at all during the, the show here, but it does speak to Hubbard's basic attitude and purpose in life, which was trying to become cause. Right. And not be the adverse effect of his own cause was a big part of that. In other words, living a consequence free life, you know, do what you want, do what you will. That's the only real rule. And that comes straight out of Aleister Crowley's work. So, you know, people talk about occult tie-ins. Well, yeah, they're, you know, we're not doing secret rituals in black robes, murdering babies in Scientology. It's not that kind of occult right. attitude. It's this kind of occult attitude where you're trying to become, you know, this godlike creature who can, you know, f- exert his will over others other groups, other people, other whatever, and not have, not suffer any repercussions as a result of it. Right. You know, it's interesting about that. One of the CST advices talks about leaving a heritage behind yes. and making our legacy immortal. Yes. Um, along with rebirth, revival, and transformation. And those were part of the purposes of, you know, ad- and directly applying this to us spiritually. So I think along with his like seeking that and what you can't discount in bringing that up is it, I when Dynex came out, you know, I think it was like a kid with like a shiny thing and was like, check this out. This is the newest thing. And then he got slapped down and disgruntled and vengeful and and you know started and he was already seeking out occult stuff and so this is more of like i guess what you call in scientology a service facsimile (laughs) (laughs) right right yeah and i think he is kind of like the whole history of it is kind of part of that too of like i'll show you and I'll, you know, like you get to a point where it's, it's weird being a part of it where the IRS thing's going on and, and everything's like in the late 80s, everybody's like freaking out that there's an audit imminent and they're out running around vetting every file they can do to prove the LRH has been off the lines for the last 10 years or eight years or whatever it was. And they're do, but yet at the same time, he's trying to stamp his name in history and, and directly sending out all these advices and setting up new corporate, you know, a lot of this stuff before he died, he was directly on the lines and, but he wasn't supposed to be per judgment and per direct violation of the, you know, of of what would destroy the organization. So it shows you were, and you were around at CST while Hubbard was still around. No, no. Okay. When did you arrive to CST? I was a messenger um, when all that, when he was still alive. Okay. So that was, what year did you arrive to CST then? Uh, 89. Oh, okay. So a couple of years after he died. A couple years okay. after. And, and, but that was like, even with the loyal office, like it, it, it's a, it's worth like with, when dissecting Scientology, I really think it's worth 
paying attention to the lineage of it. Yep. Um, or what yep. a Scientology time track is. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it, it's instead of it being a premeditated thing, where with with kind of with LRH it was his premeditation was to get as many believers as possible, stamp his name into history, and get rich. That's right. DM the brokers, like people, Sarge, and people that were around at the last days, and their intentions were totally different. DM's intentions were different. And now it's more of a react to everything rather than a premeditated, my goal is to stamp our name in history. It's more of just like cope and react, cope and react. To whatever's going on there's enemies everywhere it's almost like weird paranoia is how it's being run that's and, a, you know you make a very good point because scientology really is rather aimless in their in their direction of, of where the organization itself as a whole or the quote-unquote religious movement is actually going they right. seem you know other than making money and sort of keeping themselves going they really don't seem to have much of the in a way of a, an overall purpose or direction except the CST still keeps going and this archive project still keeps going. And a lot of people look at that and think to themselves, what the hell? Why well, is ASI also keeps going. What's that? That's, ASI also keeps going. Able, wise. I mean, those are, those get left out, but those are big, like safe points in the community, not CST so much, but ASI, ABLE, Y, those are, people talk about safe points and, and why, you know, Scientology is just kind of left alone a little bit. That's why getting, that's why I say keep it linear is that when I was in the Sea Org, were you were in at the same time, weren't you? Or were you in later? Well, I was in, I was a staff member in the late 80s and early 90s, and I joined the Sea Org in 95. Okay, so in the late 80s, you would remember how big of a deal it was and how much like Portland, how them for us to get religious freedom. And it wasn't, it's funny because it, it, it wasn't to, because we're so religious or we were so religious, it's because we wanted to hide behind that religious cloak. And it was very clear to everybody. I mean, the seminars that happened at the local orgs and all the staff members went in there and laughed and joked. And it was kind of a fun, you know, kind of jovial time, just showing some basic hypnotic techniques, you know? And and us thinking, well, God, I guess you get something out of it and it's better than nothing for religion. So, you know, you want to hide behind it and then, because you have all these protections, you know? And that's the difference is you have, you're allotted all these gray zones to work in and Scientology wasn't like oh how convenient there's gray zones they were like we need those gray zones so we need to do whatever we can to get like and that was the big push in the late 80s and that's kind of where you know the one thing that they that the management and stuff can't be um ridiculed for is kind of lack of getting things done or making things work out you know they're they have even though every week it's like a hill 10 and there's all this stuff going on and Thursday at two and oh my God, and here we go again and stats and, you know, it's like this big reaction thing. They're still planning out and getting stuff like LRH and that's all because of LRH and only because you have to follow his policy. And that's why archives is there. And that's why ASI is there. It's twofold. One, to kind of hide all the money and try to get it before the religious 
um, designation came from the IRS. There was, it wasn't like there was, this was their only plan. Yes, the IRS was there and they were going to try to get religious status, but if not, they were forming all these other companies and doing all this other stuff to hide their money. There's all this money that travels through ASI and goes to CST. That was a big push in the eighties, the archives project. Right. But Seward didn't, you know, then there's this little office in PAC that has like three guys going through and, and their short story was like, Oh, we're just getting all the basic masters and originals and making sure that this is all going to be spot on 100% on tech. We're never going to miss anything, you know? And everybody's just like, sweet. They don't think anything of it while all that's happening. There's all these huge, there's these confidential bases that nobody, I didn't have no clue about it. And most people at Int didn't even have a clue about it. And if they did, they didn't know where it was. Right. That's right. And that, that's that compartmentalization of information. And actually, you, you know, I think you're the I think you're the first person to ever bring up the plan B aspect of, of all of this for Scientology, because, uh, you know, people kind of, you know, from a historical perspective, let's actually take a look at this for a second. You know, in throughout the 1980s, it was a struggle. Scientology has always been kind of struggling for their existence, and they've always maintained a fairly positive attitude about it because Hubbard imbues so much life and energy and vitality into people through his words and his writings. He does. I mean, you can look at a lot of his stuff and say it's completely ridiculous, and it is. Right. <laughs> it's totally horseshit. I mean, I've taken this stuff apart. It's fucking bullshit. Yet... You know, you, you got to get your, you got to remember that the people who are following Hubbard through the 70s, 80s, now, these are not stupid people. These are not unenlightened people. These are people with initiative. These are people with a lot of personal vitality in many cases. And they really put their all into this, you know. So, yeah, so the idea that there were plan B's and C's and D's in place should be no surprise to anybody because it was life or death for them. If right. the IRS wasn't going to, you know, give ground. No, it was hide as much money as possible. Like, because you were coming, they were coming to get us. We, there was semi trailers full of documents that had, had already been vetted and were being vetted again, just to make sure that That's that right. one document didn't have his name signed on it. That gave an order past us. What was it like 1982 or something? Or <laughs> yep. it was like, that was, it was the big thing and and it but like Scientology like you know what's interesting is that if you look at a lot of the books that LRH never really gave up on which was like Big League Sales, The Art of War, a few books like that you see those are all meant to like it's it wasn't like well it was a game but it was a very serious game I guess it was like a war basically and it wasn't like it's almost what they say in The Art of War is um, you appear small when you're big and you appear big when you're small and you always are out flanking and you can't be obvious. You have to be kind of a little calculated and, and cloaked in what you're doing. So even if it's one thing, you know, oh, hey, here's where we're going. This could just be a full distraction to what we're really doing. And we're already hedging our bets and saying, yeah, we're going to probably get the IRS and we're going to make your life hell. But if we don't, we have all these other, we're not just, that's not it. We never put your eggs in one basket. 
And, and right. I think that's where that megalomania from LRH came in was that look at his life. He was on the run. He came into the country all, you know, like he was playing that cloak and dagger thing forever. And, and there's no way that couldn't look at mission earth. Have you like mission earth is a really good, like parallel of what's happening with the church right now. I mean, not a lot of people have the gumption to get through it. <laughs> like, it was a difficult read. Dude. It was 10 books and it was. Two. Yeah. It's a decology. It's like over a million words. I read it in college after I escaped and after just because it was like, and it was amazing to read it all and be like, holy crap. Like this is, you know, not only is he so on one point, so crazy and probably laughing that I'm just making fun of everybody, you know, like it, it's, it's just, it's a weird I don't know. It, it it's um I think we got off track a bit, but <laughs> well, I, I don't know. We were this is all very interesting. And I am I was literally about to direct us back to the CST stuff though, because I wanna I wanna focus on a couple of things. Yeah. Um okay, so first so we've kind of got the idea of 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 what its function is. Um and to be super clear, let me let me put this in my own words and you tell me if I'm right about this from what you understand. CST, Church of Spiritual Technology, is an entity or organization that does not interface with the public from a service point of view. They don't, they don't reg the public yeah. for money directly. They have projects that do that. They don't interface with the public. In fact, they lock them out and, and arrest them if they come around and try to, <laughs> you know, try to disturb what CST is up to, right? They literally will call the cops on you. They do not want you around. They don't want anybody prying in their business. Functionally speaking, CST owns the trademarks and service marks and copyrights of Dynetics and Scientology. Right. They lease them to the RTC, the Religious Technology Center, which is the organization headed by David Miscavige. Right. He's the chairman of the board of RTC. He is not in any way organizationally overseeing or responsible for CST. On paper. Right, on paper, <laughs> okay. yeah, exactly. Right? But he's the head of RTC. CST gives or leases these trademarks and service marks to RTC. Right. RTC's function is trademark enforcement. And... Right to in turn lease the trademarks and service marks to all the Scientology organizations up right. and down the hierarchical structure. If you're gonna use it and it's gonna be an official Scientology organization, it's gonna be licensed by RTC. And right. that is what gives David Miscavige all of his power because he is the one who can literally all on his own decide if he wants to shut down a Scientology organization by taking away their copyrights and service marks and not letting them be a Scientology organization anymore. That's, that's how he wields power. And he never says that. He never threatens that. I've never once, right. seen anybody, <laughs> yeah. you know, go into a Scientology organization and say, we're going to take your stuff, but it's, but, but you have to kind of know that, um, there is a poster-sized picture on the wall of every Scientology organization that explicitly states that this organization is licensed by RTC and is only using the trademarks and service marks because RTC is letting them. So they don't have to go out and, and flex their muscles or, or tell you how they're in charge. They just are. And well, all the science, you know, all the well, organizations. I never really thought of that as a leveraging point i think that's more to appease 
the bureaucracy that that is and that's more of yeah i mean because i don't i've never in any org i was ever in it was never like oh no our you know there was never like the staff never were thinking well other than the mission holders conference <laughs> Hello? Hello. I think the mission holders learned all about RTC, you know, about trademark enforcement, right? right, right. Fact, that might have even been where they got the idea, for all I know. It's, yeah, again, yeah, it's not something they talk about out loud because they don't have to. Right. Like when, right. when RTC shows up, it is yes, sir, no, sir, how high, sir, and there is no other words about it. And, you know, and sometimes RTC will show up. Interesting, when you went in the Seorg and when I was in, it wasn't such a presence. Right, it changed. Didn't become more, it was almost like they were then bypassing the messengers. That's exactly what they were doing. Right, exactly. And, and, And so it was that demise came, you could see it slowing down. I'm sure after a while, it was like, we don't need 20 people to run a con unit. I can have one person doing what I tell them and it'll be, you know, and I think that's where that absolute power kind of corrupts, you know, it's a, it's, it's sort of an interesting um, scene playing out that they're bypassing themselves. And thus, you know, that's where a lot of the true believers start to get, confused i think because it's been the way that's why they can't really change their uniform that much and that's really why they can't uh, you know i would imagine his david miscavige's biggest headache is being strapped to all this policy and all this stuff and having to live within these confines and not just being able to do whatever we changed it this way everybody doesn't like this the naval uniform fine we'll change it to a regular you know well you can't do it because if you do, then you all you you know you show that you don't have any regard for the the policy, and and that's what keeps him also in there. Is it, you know, it's almost like um, the Wizard of Oz principle of the great Oz behind pulling all the you know bells and what, and you got to kind of keep that facade because it works. Everybody wants that yellow brick road, and they want to find this this great Shangri-La or whatever and it's a system that's set up even if it's intentionally to help it's it's almost like all organized you know that's where it's like you're right there are smart people that kind of set it up and it takes it's like the only other religion that's new and successful like this or relatively new is what the Mormon religion yeah that's right you know? I mean and they similar very similar premise you know the guy was kind of a con man a little bit of a criminal this and that then he decided to find religion and and instead of just saying i found religion i want to live a better life and repent then he has to make up all this weird spiritual stuff that happened in order to make it legit exactly hold that carrot and have people run around and so I, i think like with the cst project what i used to think and what i think now are are a lot different tell me Um, well, now it's more, it feels more into like he was, he's doing that with the haha, we're going to be around, but he just wants his name to be stamped in eternity. He wants everything he's done to be worshiped and to be adored and to be, cause, and, and honestly, it's this weird weapon, like mental weapon, that if somebody finds it and can get a bunch of people come and do it and get them thinking that he found this lost scriptures 
it's a system that makes you kind of feel a little brighter, makes you feel a little bit better. But that's something you can do by taking a walk, you know, and that's something you can do by having a good conversation with somebody that you feel animosity towards or, you know, like it, it's but it's set up in a nice little package that if there wasn't all this bad press and stuff, a lot more people would be adherent to it without even really realizing it. That's I think that's the thing is like when an organization has as their like foundational books, like uh, big league sales. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get them saying yes. And then they can't say no. Don't let them walk the door out with walk out of the door with something in their hand. Get yeah. them, you know, always think about exchange. Well, wouldn't you want to make the world a better? Wouldn't you want, you know, get that. I was taught that in missions when I was a kid selling book once, you know, so it, it translates well to, of course, like, hey, I found this thing. And sure, I guess if there wasn't anything better and it didn't hurt people and it was run differently, it wouldn't be, it'd be kind of like a, any other religion, right? But well, there's only right. and more, you know, it's just the power of you have to have a belief. And they just don't believe in a deity so much as they think you're a deity. Each individual exactly. is a deity. So that's the difference. And I guess one, it's almost like Occupy, right? You don't need, when that movement came out, they went to New York and they took over a huge park and we don't need rules and we don't need any infrastructure. And then after about a week of no, no porta potties and no, like, well, maybe we should get a couple rules. Well, who wants to be in charge? You know, it's kind of as humans when we get together, we, that's sort of how we are hardwired and we need to find this peer system or this echelon system. I mean, maybe Plato and Aristotle had it right. You know, maybe there are musicians and warriors and artists and thinkers and, you know, I, I don't know. So I think LRH wants to be a part of that. He wants to be, that's what the archive project is all about is he wants, he's, he made sure that there's these going to be these places that are unmistakable in a hundred years, 500 years, and you can go there and you can make some, you can read something or hear something or watch something or like whatever. And if a little bit of that and there's nothing else, oh my God, right? <laughs> well, especially with these archives, cause they're extensive. I mean, all of Hubbard's works, all the encyclopedias, all the books he ever referenced, you know, and all, and all the dictionaries. Right. You know, books to teach you how to read. I mean, it's extensive. They really yeah. did think the whole thing through. Absolutely. So, all right. So let's uh, so let's get to some questions answered here. First one, um, because it, you know, there's extensive. There's a lot of stuff here. You referenced or mentioned the CST advices. These are specifically Hubbard uh, written notes or issues that only refer to the Church of Spiritual Technology and are only read by people at the Church of Spiritual Technology? Right. Okay, and what were these, these advices? How many of them were there? How long were they? Like, what are we talking about here? A few I mean, pages or volumes or something in between? See, oh, no, it was a small binder, probably like 20 to 30 advices, nothing huge, like a mini hat pack kind of thing. Okay. Um, and really similar to flag orders. Um, okay. And not all of them said LRH at the bottom. Some had four X's, some had three X's, which is, if you know anything about Scientology hierarchy, you know who those people are. Um, 
So, who, who are those people? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, anyways, I was Inquiry talking. minds want to know, Dylan. Come on, I man. I was talking to Janice Grady um, not too long ago, and because I was very concerned about whether they all came directly from him or they were written for him. Mm-hmm. Are kind of different, you know. Some usually it takes his approval, and or some stuff is written based on his like what he said, and then they'll go like VA would go and write, you know, based on her conversation would write it down and sign it with her exes, and then it would be an advice, um, where which can't be tra- traced back to source per se, but it's based on notes from source and his messengers a lot of them are you're supposed to be able to duplicate and blah, blah, blah. so um yeah it was a kind of an interesting because they were kind of from all over the place it, it wasn't like just a, a linear thought out thing there was a few um and then speaking with chuck Beatty, there were some art um asi advices that were also with cst so part of it was kind of intermixed with the ASI advices and because ASI has its own set of advices as well. Right. Um, but these organizations were all formed up around the same time period. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it wasn't even, um, I think it was even in the early more late seventies that you can start finding traffic on it. And I mean, he always said he wanted to stamp his name in history. So I, I it could be one of those back projects you know, that it was like, no matter what, and as you kind of get more, you know, like, that's why I think the linear thing applies is like, in the early 80s. Um, that's when, you know, he was at the Creston Ranch and chasing body phaetons and trying to get Sarge to build a e-meter to electrocute him. And, but a lot of these advices are in, the, you know, 82 and 83. And you're, you're wondering, you know, like, if you're that worried about all these creatures invading, I think a lot of those fears would maybe express themselves in um, wanting to preserve your name. And, you know, that might be if you're fearing for your mortal life and realizing that you basically did just fill a bunch of bullshit up for people, that this may be the last thing to go down and, you know, like the ultimate selfish act kind of thing, you know? Right, right. uh, You know, I don't know. That I don't know, but... Um, But I do know time-wise that it was near the end of his life. So that's what made me start to think of like, well, what are these, you know, I think it would be taken in context of like, at the same time, the brokers were there, the loyal officer issue came out, DM was on the lines. um, There was a few messengers that were at Creston still. everybody was obviously trying to figure it out because they were starting to realize what was going on. And that's like, that's where I think the loyal officer issue came up. And then I would think that DM had way too much dirt on the brokers and they were in this secluded place and he was able to control more. So I would think with the IRS thing and the Wallersham case, this is where they're trying to figure out these second and third plans of like, what right. a great place, you know, those are, it's like our backup plan, you know, let's, right. ASI was relatively new around that time as well. Archives was also new because ASI is there 
to feed archives. So any money that comes into ASI, and that's why it was such a big push with um, public at the time. And you could probably find like talk to a bunch of public during that in the 80s. And they were trying to get sold those gold bound Dianetics books and hard. And they were like thousands of dollars. And that all went to the archive project. Right. Yeah, they were doing fundraising. Right, right. There's like a brochure yeah. out there that people were trying to do. So I think it's kind of like you it's the weird that it's the highest, most high echelon, but I think it's like in reality, the backup plan escape to like that's your hideout <laughs> that you eventually and the reason why I say that is because you touched on it. He didn't even utter the words, nobody even talked about CST. When I got up there, it was LRH archives. And then I got told, well, actually, we're the Church of Spiritual Technology, and this is why, and da da da. And it was like, oh, okay, I get it. We're not even a part. And it's that backup. We built a log cabin just for the international execs. They didn't have birthing in the LRH house on the main base. They didn't have, there was staff birthing. They had their own log cabin built for all the IGs just in case. LRH came back and they would be able to go up there and, and do that kind of thing was kind of the, the whole idea. But the whole idea of the LRH or the exec cabin was that only in emergency or only if, you know, absolute worst case scenario, would they ever use it? Okay. So we were building buildings based on that they would probably never get used until LRH returned and all that happened. So, so there was a very okay, good. So let's so let's uh, take a look at this. So there was a a very clear cut idea on the part of these people, and I guess I'm going to have to assume at that time, when all this was going down, 80s and early 90s, that David Miscavige is included in this group of people we're talking about now who actually believed that L. Ron Hubbard was going to come back at some point. Yeah, I don't think it was. I, I mean, I think it was a foregone conclusion. At, at, with the, I mean, they, he was on the lines to CST to everybody every day. <laughs> you know, I was getting orders um, on my email from him like daily almost. From David Miscavige. Yeah, exactly. So he was well aware of everything that had to do with CST. There was only a few people that even knew on the int base, like I said, um, Jackson knew about it because he was the head of security um, and had something to do with the microwave project. I forget what, what he had to do with it, but he was on the gold end of it. And uh, Shelly, of course, uh, David Miscavige. And other than that, I'm sure the IGs knew about it, but I never, there was no, nobody else talked to us. And by the IGs, you're talking about the inspector generals, the people, yeah, yeah. The, the senior, the senior staff of RTC. Yeah, the senior, like the execs of RTC. Not, I don't even right. think the rank and file. You know, they knew who we were, but they knew us as LRH archives because we go to events and we would sit either next to them, right in front of them, or right behind them, depending on. <laughs> what the flavor of the week yeah exactly <laughs> who was the favored person this week yeah but we were always front front and center you know i mean that was always so that's when we saw all those people and half of them we knew you know there were people that i had known my entire sea org career and they were like we're kids i was i'm like 19 20 years old at the time you know like it wasn't like we were like 
old or anything. We're just kids still hanging out. Yeah, so. exactly. All right. Now I got I, I so many questions. We're going over so much material here. So so let me, let me just see if I can focus in on a couple of things and, and we can get some questions answered here. First off, you read all the CST advices. Basically, um, what'd you get out of them? What was the what was the point of those advices and what do you still to this day understand them to be about? Um well really they were to talk they, they were more of like the sea org is the only hope for mankind well this was the the administration that backed it up basically like we were building little cachet well big cachets but we we're building you know time capsules to say for all eternity to preserve the only technology that can save mankind you know, I mean, that was the general gist of it. When they talked about the symbols um, is when it became a little different. Um, Are you referring to the logo of CST? Well, right, and the, but that kind of speaks to more of the real meaning behind it. Um, uh-huh. Like the, the symbols are supposed to um, there was a, and I'm not, there was a, a, an advice, and I think this is one of the ones that ASI and CST shared was the linguia spatia or whatever <laughs> that um, talked about the ARC and the KRC triangle um, being one above, one below. Um, and the circles aren't an infinity circle, but rather um, circles that represent dualism and perfection, kind of the unity of two triangles, like a balance of opposites, um, not a circle, but divided into two halves, like a key of life, basically, is kind of what it talked about. Interesting. Right, which at the time, key to life was a huge thing, and like that just had been released. Right. Uh, and and it was wondered, a, the key to life was a course that Scientology delivered. I delivered it myself personally in, in right. Santa Barbara. And it had a little symbol that went along with it, which was a key, looked like a key. And the, and the key uh, looked like an old fashioned key, like a skeleton. Like key. Old keys that have. Yes. The- <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the end, the handle on the very end of the key was an infinity symbol. And then the. Well, uh, well <laughs> the, the one that we were, the one that we had, right? It wasn't. Yeah. It, you know, and then it had uh, life spelled out uh, where the right. key part down was. the key part, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. As far as symbology goes, and the key to life was just a big grammar course. Is basically what it was. It was all about communication. Right, right. Well, for me at the time, that's where it was like it kind of meshed with um, what was happening in Scientology, and maybe slight changes or or more um, emphasis on different areas. Um, that's like the key to life was something that had, been, I know that that was also part of getting the staff up the bridge and that wasn't happening. So they were gonna do that. But um, when I read the advices that kind of made me think that there was another evolution or or maybe people were using the last writings and trying to decipher them or make sense of them or something. <laughs> I don't know, um, but the infinity part of the symbol are more of the ARC and KRC triangles making the diamond. 
Um, and then two, oh, okay. All right. So let's take a look at this. We're talking about the CST logo. I'm going to throw it up on the screen here so we can take a look at it. Um, and it's basically two interlocked or joined circles. It looks like a little Venn diagram with two diamonds in each of the, in the center of each of the circles in there. And so you could interpret the two interlocking circles as an infinity symbol, but I don't know that that's accurate. That doesn't really, it's not really what it is. No, it's not. It's um, not at all. Yeah. Um, so what are we, what are we looking at there? What is, what's your understanding of this? <laughs> um, it represents perfection and dualism, the unity of the two trying or the two diamonds. Um, it's like a balance of opposites. It's, uh, okay. Um, and this was in the advices that you read? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it's okay. not a circle, but it's divided. So that's where the dualism comes in. Okay. Right? So it's okay. the balance of it rather than the infinity of it. And um, the dualism of what exactly? What dual? What what two things? What are we talking about there? The balance. Well, and then so that's that's your circles, right? And so that represents the balance. And the ARC and KRC triangles in the center represent ascension towards the spiritual, the top of it, and descend into the physical world. Oh. So the mind and body, basically. Oh, that's mind body spirit and right, right. so okay. that's kind of, and then originally there was a talk of colors where the the left one was red and the right one was blue oh okay and that's where the the dualism comes in um everything is still a whole and carries everything in one uh body and one mind kind of thing huh like everyone can have good and bad, dark and bright sides kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like have, it's sort of like talking about people, but just putting it into a union of spiritual and physical, basically. Okay. And maybe that, okay. that, maybe that plays into the axioms a bit of like, why would you want to be in a body and survive? Maybe that's part of like holding yourself or grounding yourself with that body and mind and then into one or maybe he gave up and realized that we can't leave our body and we're kind of trapped in there so we're going to kind of make them all fit <laughs> you know i know right, that right. Um, interesting now you mentioned earlier this lingua spesa expression and i looked i just looked that up and it was used by hubbard in two of his books right, uh, right. the language of space is exactly. what it means what it what, what how does that fit into this well that's part of when he talks about the the halves and coexisting and the diamonds and the colors and it's that whole dualism that's supposed to be alluding to this space language oh and that's and that his writings and stuff are that's supposed to be a symbol that communicates in that language basically <laughs> Oh, okay. So is it, so then this conjecture then about these symbols being carved into the ground so that it could be seen from the air? Because that's, you know, you can't see them from the ground. I mean, you have in Creston, California, there's a picture on the Wikipedia page of the Creston Ranch, and there is what looks like a, a, a running track with this symbol right smack in the middle of it. 
What's, right. What is that all about? Do you, like, are, are they there to communicate to somebody in the air, like the Nazca lines, you know, down in the deserts, down in I South mean, America? What are we talking about talked here? about as to that, other than it's like your mark, <laughs> you know? And I think with it meaning, um, or supposed to be per LRH, having this space language um, meaning, that's what you're basically saying is this is where you combine your spirit and your body or your and you can ascend or you can de like it's almost like a it would be it would communicate to people that this is a place that has knowledge that's useful to you basically right like maybe all these ufo stops that have been happening since i don't know the 1940s <laughs> whatever <laughs> Uh, just a joke there, but you know, maybe this idea here then is that UFOs come around and Hubbard definitely said many, many times in his lectures that UFOs come around and he didn't even right. call them UFOs. He said they were from Markab or the fifth invader force or right. whoever. He wasn't saying they were unidentified, but right. he was saying we get visited by people from other civilizations out in space all the time. So Am I reading this right, that this symbology that's being carved into the ground by each of these vaults is language that, or symbols that would be understood by extraterrestrials? From a science fiction writer, yes. Right, <laughs> right. Let's always keep that in mind. <laughs> no, no, but it's, you know, I mean, there is a lot because i've questioned a lot of it and i've been kind of hesitant to to delve into it very much because it sounds sort of crazy and then and i don't like i'm not i'm a i'm critical i guess but i'm not super venomous towards you know I, I grew up in it and yeah I, I, you know there's it's sort of hard to demean something and i think we talked about this a little bit last time it and i still i don't those feelings haven't gone away i it's it's I've tried to take all the knowledge that I find worthy and attribute it to correct sources, but it's still hard to, to not acknowledge that where I first was introduced to all that was in Scientology. And it, it's sort of, you know, it was a nice package growing up and what you were told were a lot of basic truths and the code, you know, personal integrity and that, you know, and those have a lot of merit and weight on their own without Scientology, but where I understood him was with Scientology. So um, it's, you know, I, I just had a hard time talking about it because a lot of this info parallels um, Rosicrucian, you know, a lot of stuff that he, Hubbard would have been exposed to and would have yes. been able to study, research, and then uh, and use to come up with what he came up with. So, and some of it probably just made up straight out of nothing and you know, that, I think that's where he got a lot of his joy out of was just being source, you know, and like, I thought it, it's true. Look at all these people believe me. Like, that's sort of a, I don't know. It's like if you're an addictive personality, that's the ultimate drug, you know. You got um, it. Fame, man. Power. Right. No, and look at, God, look at all these websites. Look at all these blogs that this is going to go on to. Half the people, if it's fans of Leah, they're mainly there because of Leah and they hope to talk to her and interact with her directly. And I get it. That's part of it, you know? Um, and God bless them. I, I think that's great. Um, but it does sensational and it's hard not to get caught up in that. I think that's a struggle yes. for anybody with a lot of attention on them, either 
of their own will or of somebody else's, they, it's hard not to get caught up in that fame and praise and, you know, oh, Leah and Mike, they're wonderful and everybody. And, you know, it's nice to, yeah, I feel, <laughs> you know, so. Of course, of course. Um, well, you know, I want to, I want to allay one of your fears here or ideas that you had said. Um, if it was true that L. Ron Hubbard put this symbology together in order to communicate to extraterrestrial species, let's say, or, or civilizations with this lingua spacia, right. <laughs> if I'm saying that right, right, using this symbology, right. um, it would be internally consistent with everything else in Scientology that he said about that. So in and of itself, it sounds crazy, but it's actually completely consistent logically with right. everything else in Scientology. The weird part, the part that gets crazy in Scientology is when somebody walks in and, it, and does some bridge and starts getting going and does auditing and says in a session, I can communicate with people in extra in in other civil in extraterrestrials, or right. I can communicate with Ron spiritually, or I can communicate with other spirits spiritually. When somebody comes in saying shit like that, we can't show them the door fast enough, right? We're right. like, whoa, no, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yet what they are saying is completely internally consistent with all the beliefs of Scientology. So there's this weird thing that goes on in Scientology where if something sounds a little nuts, they won't go for it from somebody, but they'll accept it from L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> well, you know, and I think part of it is like early on in the indoctrination, they talk about um implants and yep. you know implant stations and, and that's not really talked about a lot in social media but i think it's important be, and in, in this way it is because the idea with going ot or anything like that was being able to spot those and then not be re-implanted and not right. have your memory wiped and have to start over so I, that i think speaks to these symbols a lot more than extraterrestrials that never had heard of. I think it was more of- Oh, so it's for us. It's for us. And, and maybe since it's the language of space, it just happens to you know serve a dual purpose, which where the science fiction th thing comes in. Right. But to follow his timeline or his thought process more, that's kind of how I took it was that, you know, when you don't get trapped in those implant stations and reprogrammed to be have amnesia and blah, 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 this will all make sense and it'll be a clear distinction as to like, this is where you go to get right. that unity, to have that. It's like a summoning symbol is what it basically is Okay. It's used as a summoning symbol. So, right. um, and wouldn't it be a surprise? I mean, just to kind of extend this out a little bit more. I mean, I get it about, you know, telling this to existing Scientologists, even though it's a little bit weird that no Scientologists actually see that symbol unless they look it up on Wikipedia. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but if Hubbard is asserting that it's the language of space, then it would be a very clear cut announcement to any visitors coming to Earth. And by the way, I don't believe any of this stuff, by the way. I've just got to yeah. put that out there because yeah. uh, people might start thinking I'm like actually into this and I'm not. Right. But if it were true, then this would be a gigantic announcement to the rest of the universe uh we're here we got something you guys want come back around this is right yeah get it. 
and I never saw any mention of that. Like, that's why I said I, I kind of took it more as, you know, with my mindset of growing up and knowing that once we get around those implant stations, that it'll be a clear symbol or a summoning symbol for us to know to come back to as Satan's, as right. these trapped prison planet people that, you know, all that. So okay. I think it fit nicely in that. And, and it was more, um, that's kind of the whole thing. But at the same time, there was also some stuff that talked about um, spiritual, like um, being surrounded by, well, I think that's kind of part of the implant, being surrounded by a dense fog um, that that like kind of obstructs our ability to see clearly. Um, and by by using the teachings of the, the diamonds or the thing, it can help um, with our purpose and, and see things in a new light, kind of. Well, yeah. So the symbol is supposed to spark some some imagination and initiative and, and idea that there's more to all of this than just what you see. Well, or that's what, it's like a, you know, barber shop. <laughs> or, <laughs> okay. If you're, if you're okay. in a fog and you need clarity, come here. You know? Light, it's a lighthouse. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the whole idea. Because the purpose of the bases aren't to be inhabited and to be or functioning orgs unless there's a big huge catastrophic event you know and you got to remember like scientology still kind of believes that the russians are going to bomb us so <laughs> you know right. world war three is eminent in the way lrh saw it so and and then again that's the sign of the times and why you need to take scientology more linear and and understand that you know yeah he might have been a smart man but he was still a victim of his times of course, you know, very he much so. He was a big bean, but he was still, you know, feared nuclear war. Did this? That's a lot of his motivations were based on the fears of the time that he grew up. Exactly. You know, and, and his vengeance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which so that's kind of part of you know like I don't know. No, totally. You're absolutely right. You can see all the standard Midwest growing up in the Midwest kind of biases that he had, mm -hmm. casual racism that he had. The vindictiveness of his character was his, you know, unique trait, but it was certainly powerful part of his personality and motivation. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, all the things that were, you know, that, that his way of thinking was because of the times he was in. He definitely did not demonstrate an ability to rise above that in any way. Uh, even with his attitudes about LGBT, etc., and um, and his inability to predict things like the internet right, <laughs> the right. wall coming down in russia right back when it did right after he died i mean there's all kinds of things that happened that hubbard did not account for at all in any of his policies or issues or or foresee happening despite the fact that he claimed to have all this you know knowledge of extraterrestrial yeah, and his, in his lectures he's claiming he's hopping around galaxies and exactly stuff, like, he would think that he would have a, a his finger on the pulse of earth you know exactly <laughs> well let me, uh, let me let's let's move toward wrapping this up here because i um because i want to i did i really glad we covered that symbol that, that symbol and the, and the logo of cst because i get asked about it all the time and right. i have not had this information to give people so i really really appreciate you putting this out there is there more to that that people should know about or is there anything more to these cst advices that people should know about or do you think would want to know about um well i think the only thing that kind of parallels 
um, what is more in the news and more in aftermath recently was the whole second coming of LRH. Um, yes. And yes. And you talked about how everybody seemed to be on the same page of believing this was going to happen. Well, it's, you know, when you're up there and you're building LRH houses and you're archiving stuff, and then you're going out to external bases and building LRH houses for, and it wasn't like, it was like, oh, build them a nice house. It was like, build them a house, build them a productionary, build them a place for his messengers, like make it like this was planned on being a used and functional place. Right. It was a foregone conclusion when I was in the messengers org that he was returning. It wasn't, it was just, he was going off to do further research. Like, I know it sounds like crazy when you see the, you know, the um, event where DM talks about LRH dropping his body. And, but I mean, we were, we were told in no uncertain terms to not grieve, not have any human emotion and reaction and just go back and produce, get back to work and back on target and back on task. Yeah. Um, and that's how we were supposed to do it. So it wasn't, I, it was more of like, I mean, even then the all clear hadn't been given, right? There was still, he was still being, pro so it was, there was a lot of work to be done if you, assuming you believed. So the rank and file, I'm not sure about like flag crew, FSO, PAC crew, AOLA, ASHO. I don't know if those, what they thought, but I know all the management orgs we're pretty much like, okay, he can come back at any time almost. Okay. It wasn't, I didn't think it was the whole leave of absence or any, I mean, it was like, my feeling when I was up there was like, you know, he could be showing up. And I think that's maybe where a lot of the thing with David Miscavige comes in is like, as long as he's pushing everything and forcing stuff and being strict, he, maybe he thinks he's keeping them away because everything's going great. You know, like, <laughs> maybe it doesn't need to come. You know, I mean, like in a, it's hard to really get in the mind of like kind of psychosis. Yes. Um, and, and a lot of times is that you have to lie to. It's like alcoholics. You kind of have to lie to yourself, but you're still doing the bad thing that's hurting everybody around you. But you're still lying to yourself and making yourself believe or. Or making up, you know, oh, maybe there's spies or maybe there's this. And, you know, like you kind of have to battle that, you know, your natural behavior. And, and I think that might be part of it is uh, and that's what made me question the, the references in the first place or the, the advices was it seemed like there was a lot of this almost like let's tie up a few loose ends here and there and keep everybody kind of believing. Because then what happened is David did start talking about archives and all that. And then it, when the new Scientology channel came out, they did a big special on it. They showed every, you know, and it's like, haha, here all the time. And and why? Well, Scientology has religious status now and that, you know, like, and it, it, it's a bigger, now it's safer because now they can hide behind that religious cloak a little bit more. So they can say, oh, look, here's all my stuff that I've been doing. When before it was all secretive and hidden, like, well, this was my my escape route and now that i kind of feel safe i'll show you all my shit you know yeah exactly so, i don't think that scientology i don't think that you know despite everything that's going on and i want to be really super clear about this because it's not i don't want to make it out to be that the actions that all of us take are ineffectual uh don't matter or anything like that they do they all do 
But I don't think David Miscavige is in a headspace of fear about the, the, the survivability of Scientology. It depends what you mean by fear. Um, I mean, I don't think he's afraid for his freedom or his life or his uh, continued uh, overlording over Scientology. Just like an alcoholic never thinks that they're going to have to stop drinking. Exactly. Absolutely. That's part. And you, but at the same time, all your actions are based on terror because that's the one thing you're afraid of is having that taken away from you. Yep. So Good that's point. why you act like a paranoid, delusional psychopath is because you're terrified, but yet you don't feel the fear. And that's how, that's what a sociopath is basically, is you don't feel, you don't understand how other people feel and you're basing everything on this reactive numbness. Exactly. And, and that's, you know, after so long, even being brought up in that, like, you know, that's the other thing we talked about last time was DM was brought up in it, raised in it, had kind of a rough childhood. And then was, you know, I know people don't like to hear say that he was given to the Sea Org because he wanted to go, but he was basically given was. away as a bot, as a human by your parent. And no matter how you look at it, I know. And the only reason I say that is because that's what happened to me. And right. I understand that. Yep. I understand that when you're 14, 15, 16 years old, I mean, you're a teenager. It doesn't matter. There was kids that were getting in at 12, 13. I was lucky to get in at 14, almost 15. But there were still kids that got it at 16, 17. doesn't make it any better. That's right. You're still a kid. And then now you're thrust into this thing and all this responsibility. And I mean, it. And you have to deal with the not dealing with the abandonment issues. <laughs> oh, God. It, you yeah, know, exactly. it's like, so. It, it, all right. It's kind of conflict resolution skills that makes it hard, I think, is all. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, one last question for you, very specific, and I'll, and I'll explain why I'm asking this in a second, but the, the very important question. In the LRH advices that you read about CST or anywhere else, in any other confidential Commodore's Messenger references or anything else, did you ever see L. Ron Hubbard claim that he was coming back? See, that's why I think I started looking at those advices because I wanted to see if they were written for or like, was he talking about reappearing? Because so there was an advice in there that talked about a young child. Okay. Returning. And it was about, you know, my idea out of it. Um, and this is 15, 20 years removed. Yeah. Um, was it a young redheaded kid about 10, 12, 14 years old would show up at the base and we would start taking care of him as LRH. And he would be, I didn't think it was going to be an infant baby. I didn't, I don't know why. I want to say that it was in the advices that he would be like, I think it was a very broad generalization, but it didn't sound like it was written in the first person. Okay. So it's somebody that, else signing with the XXX or XXXX or whatever right. probably wrote that advice, not L. Ron Hubbard. Well, you're right, because there was R, and then there was, like, you, you knew all the little, and by that time, um, he never was signing anything with his initials or anything. It was all, everything was typed out. I mean, all the flag orders at those times were typed out, but they were signed his name when he was on the lines. And then after he was supposed to be off the lines, 
now there was all these X's and all these R and this and that. And to keep, you know, that's where it's like you can see that they're actively trying to deceive the powers that be and plan their, you know, it's like backing somebody into a corner and you don't think they're going to try to escape or attack or fight you or get other people to, you know, like you back somebody into a corner and that's how you got to take that as how it was all going down. When you're in it, you don't see it that way, but hindsight, you look at it and you're like, Oh wow. They're just doing everything they can thinking that this is it, you know, and what gives it more credence that's exactly what Elrich said. Once people find a workable technology, the powers that be are going to want to destroy it because they don't want to have a better place. And that, you know, so it's it plays. That's where the smartness comes in, in my mind. Like that's where it's like it's hard not to give him credit for being intelligent. Because I he, think I think clever and crafty are better words yeah, to describe. Yeah. Well, a con man, exactly. Like somebody yes. who you know and knew what he wanted and how to get it and didn't yep. care what or who he had to hurt or destroy in the process. Yeah, exactly. To that end, he was successful, you know? <laughs> to no, his, yeah, his, I mean, it, it, by any measure, you know, he's well, right. Hubbard is well on his way to having his name stamped in history forever. Right. So, you know, good luck on that. I mean, that's not something I'm going to do or you're going to do, well, but for Hubbard, that was his thing. Well, and that's where, like, that's the head of the archives. That's the whole archives project in a nutshell. It's almost like, when Marty Rathbun and and Rinder were talking about, or Marty more so, of like, my job was to get LRHD all clear, and DM was there, and that was all we worried, and we were 100%, 20 years, all clear, all clear. Same idea. It's like there's certain things in Scientology that are like, these are going to happen. You know, like the Dianetics number one for like infinity you know it's like i don't care if we have to lie cheat buy our own books it's gonna be there and this is stamping his name in history is very well known and it's it's very clear that so i guess he didn't say he was going to return but he definitely said he wanted to stamp his name in history so that's what gives a lot of these advices a lot of credence because if it wasn't written by him it was most definitely written for him and what his will was well see now that's the point that i wanted to bring up because i have a point on this and that okay. is that i don't know that l ron hubbard personally thought he was coming back to lead scientology again right. and the reason i bring this up is i'm connecting two disconnected things CST, the advice is all that stuff that we've been talking about. And this HCOB, this bulletin that he supposedly wrote that is dated from 1980 for OT level eight, which was given out on the first edition, the first version right. of OT8. Right, right. There's a bulletin written that specifically says, I ain't coming back as a religious leader. It was written by Hubbard. Right. Or ostensibly written by Hubbard. And it says, I ain't coming back as a religious leader. I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll come back when I come back. I'll probably come back as a politician or something, I think he says. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not quoting it exactly. Right, right. That 
is questionable. There's a lot of questions in people's minds about whether Hubbard actually wrote that or whether he didn't. But what we're told is that it was included in the first edition of OT8. The public read it. This was the one that he says Jesus was a lover of boys and, you know, he's down on religion and he says he's Lucifer. So he definitely said he's coming back, but he's not coming back to live in that house that you guys built for him or as a redheaded little kid. Like none of that was in that HCOB. I tend to believe that that HCOB was real because it was included in the original OT8 materials and it so disturbed Scientologists that David Miscavige took it out. Yeah. So so and that, that HCOB... Was that 1980? Was that? 1980? Yeah. That's when it was dated. Right. So that HCOB sits here and these advices sit over here. And I asked you that question directly because I go, well, he... Mm-hmm. We think he wrote this, and so, somebody somebody else apparently wrote red hair, he's coming back, he's going to be a little kid, and I just find it amusing, kind of, and interesting, because we talk about the compartmentalization of information in Scientology. How many people at CST were OT8? Um, one. Russ? No, Russ wasn't OT8, was he? I don't know. I'm, I, 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 I was just like my guess. Three. Um, it was um, what was his name? Not Rich Gilbert. Um, Francois Jacqueline. No, it was his name. Tom. Tom. Tim. He was an older guy. He was the only guy that could archive and check all the source material for the OT stuff. And I believe he was OT. A or OT seven at least at the time, he had to be OT eight because he was. And then I think Sarah Bellin was up there, and then I think Jane McNairn was up quite a bit, but she was the port captain, um, and Sarah Bellin was the um, qualsec, or not the qualsec, but the course soup. So she wasn't doing it, but she was right. like OT three or right around there. Uh, but right. you know what? What it did bring up for me was. Um, the date is really key on that. And that's because um, in 80, most likely he was fairly still coherent and he was definitely still on the lines. Exactly. exactly. And then when I had a conversation with uh, Steve Fife before he died, and so, and it was just his recollection, but he was with LRH at the end of days. And I mean, and he describes him as like, very conflicted, very messed up, chasing body fate, like really a believer in his tech soup, you know, that he made. And um, it kind of goes into that whole, like then the loyal officer issue came out. And I think that was in 85. That was right after Hubbard died. The loyal officer issue. Right right after, like weeks after. Oh, immediately. I remember it on the board right. in Santa Barbara board. <laughs> yeah, it was up. And then literally a day later, it was gone. Traction that came out and yeah. like, this is crap and they're gone. And I think that's kind of what got me thinking about these advices. Like this was all part of that reactional plan to, you know, what isn't talked about a lot is the data series. Well, I've done videos about it. Other than that, you're right. It doesn't get talked about. That's what a lot of management uses. Like, 
pull a string, Sherman tank, like boom. I mean, there is just, it's, so you got to, like, that's how I look at it is when you're looking at all the stuff that's happening, you got to realize that they're using the data series to figure out how to solve it all. Right. <laughs> and that is a very flawed system to solve things. Right. Exactly. I mean, you're yes. just trying to find a why and nail somebody to a post and call it good. But that's kind of what happened with the loyal officer issue. And that's kind of what happened. It was like this power play. And it's like, well, at the same time, we reorg, we set this in place. Think about somebody who just took over a church. There was a kid from Philly who disarmed two people that were on the tech lines, working with LRH, doing the OT levels. Like this is where the paranoia and maybe not, well, maybe then it was fear of getting caught. So where does he place himself? In this position of ultimate power, but no responsibility. CST right. has all the trademarks, ASI has all the public revenue, everybody, and he sits up in this little position hidden away, but with the super responsibility and big title, like what a scared little kid, right? You know what I mean? Exactly. That's like, and he's afraid of getting what he just took from somebody taken away from him. That's right. And, and so that's kind of where a lot of this, so yeah, there's a, there is a shade of gray because some of those advices were written into like 84, 80. And looking back now, you're like, wait a minute, there was no way he was of any mental prowess of writing any of this shit like exactly. it just doesn't make sense well it occurs to me that it would serve david miscavige's interests as the successor of scientology especially in the in that you know heyday period that, that crazy time period of the 1980s when the future of scientology is very uncertain the right. future of, of the entire movement the, the irs problem etc and david miscavige has inherited all of this or, or taken it over i mean he's the one who did assume that power what happens when an inheritance happens and there's a bunch of siblings kind of gnawing at it what do they right. usually do? they set up a trust right exactly and if he and if he put forward there or was somehow responsible for getting out there or propagating this idea that Hubbard was going to come back, that would keep a lot of very loyal Hubbard loyalists going and right. not paying a whole lot of attention to what David Miscavige was doing, you see. Well, exactly. Also, you know, and we take this HCOB and we just kind of quietly get rid of it because the public didn't like it anyway. Right. So we have no record anywhere of Hubbard saying that he's not coming back because we took that out. Right. Right. No, absolutely. You know, so maybe all of this is just all these people spinning all their wheels and these and this and all this money being spent because David Miscavige doesn't care about money. He's got plenty of it. Well, so, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? Yeah, exactly. you know, that's what it really is like. I don't think it. you almost couldn't plan it and execute right. it any better. I think it's just a very tragic series of events. Yes. And he was able to like come out smelling like roses through most of it. And now it doesn't matter. And those that's like Simon Boulevard. Like when by the time they figure it out and they figure out that what we're doing is illegal, make sure that we make the laws. And that's, that's right. He found that shade of gray and that religious thing. And but he didn't because if he would have put himself on the board of CST, he would have limited himself and his powers. But instead, exactly. he made a bunch of lawyers and a few loyal people 
but the Maria Starkey, Norman Starkey, and David Lance, I think, were the first three Sea Org members that were a part of the archive project. Okay. And they were the they're the trustees for ASI, I think, as well. Okay. Um, or no, Norman Starkey was the trustee for AS, trustee for ASI or CST or the trade. He was involved in all that. And then there was Lyman Spurlock and it's like two or three other lawyers that were involved. Right. And, and Lyman CPA. Spurlock was a was a Sea Org member and a CPA. Right. Exactly. Yep. And, so he uh, was yeah he was up there because he actually knew what he was talking about when it came to accounting. Right. Well, and then they changed and they were gone. And then it was, you know, uh, the port captain, Jane McNairn, Russ Bellin, and I want to say, was it Arthur Bolstad? It was somebody else that then got yes, added. Arthur Bolstad was one of the other names, according to the Wikipedia page. Right. So that was, those got added on when the other people, so even CST had its attrition. Where people right. got busted out of CST back to the local orgs and this and that. And, you know, that's kind of, it's weird to, it's really weird to look at it from an outside point of view and think, oh, these are totally separate entities. But then RTC is controlling everything. Like he's still controlling all the people because the Sea Org, how it's set up, is not an entity. So you can move these people all around and do whatever. And they're just in these shell corporations. That's right. You can even move them. You can you you even have the power to move them in and out of the Sea Org at will. Right. When you when you put them at the Church of Spiritual Technology, so it's right. it's really there's so many layers to what's going on, and I wanted to kind of dive in just a little bit on some of the complications of this because it is complicated. It's very difficult to understand all this stuff, and it is a lot of minutia of how Scientology right. works. But this is the nuts and bolts of the operation. The, the, the orgs, the service delivery, the auditing, that's the show. That's the smoke and mirrors. This is the stuff one that's thing, actually keeping all of this going. You know? and, and on that point, the one thing that was quickly realized when we were there was that. That was the one place where it was like, I mean, as a messenger, I still knew that there was echelons. And even at CMOANT, there were still people. But when we got up to CST, not only the isolation, but you knew you were kind of there on it and you were your purpose became a higher purpose you know and and just briefly to touch on it with the shelly thing that's kind of what i tried to communicate to tony ortega Mm -hmm. she was sent there It, it wasn't necessarily this like i mean it's a punishment because everybody gets punished in the seor but it eventually ends yeah, and whether she's watched or not, I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff that happens probationally declared and, and whatnot. But the way it's laid out and her intimate knowledge of it is her wanting to be there more than not. Like, of any place that you would want to be, that is the place you would want to be in that organization. I don't want to shoot holes in the whole where's Shelly thing because I understand that a lot of people are very invested in it. They have an emotional investment for whatever reason. They've never met Shelly. They don't know a whole lot about her, but she's become this poster child for, you know, the horrors of David Miscavige. And I want to, I just, just occurred to me just now when you were saying this, and I want to throw this out there. Would there be any, would we know, would we have any ability, any inkling to know 
if David Miscavige was visiting Shelley at CST? No, unless you followed them. Right. There's, I mean, you know, even and even to back that up, when when I was there, we were putting in um, fiber optics, microwave systems, so we could communicate off the grid directly to Int, because there's a clear path on the top of the mountains above Gold Base and where CST is, that you can have a microwave signal hit it. Yep. So you can have inner. So then it, that was the big thing is everybody was really worried about all this traffic going back and forth between RTC and CST. And it was this big. So as soon as 1992, there was microwave communications happening and all that, anything that could be intercepted was gone. There was no public communication online. It was all private. Right. So yeah. I mean, he absolutely could communicate with I mean, it just occurred to me, we could be sitting here talking about Shelley as we have been for years and that's fine. I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating to stop talking about that or stop pushing it. Yeah. What I'm pointing out is we could all end up with great big egg on our face pushing this. If David Miscavige has been in touch with her for the last, you know, if they, if they kissed and made up and he's just got her running the show up at CST and he's running the show at FLAG and RTC, that could be the existing circumstances right now. And we're all going, <laughs> where's Shelly? Where's Shelly? Right. And Shelly's going, you guys are a bunch of morons, you know? I think it's something like that, but I don't think it's that kumbaya-ish. <laughs> I, don't, I don't either. I, I mean, knowing David Miscavige's character, I don't think that's what's going on, but I just thought I'd throw that out there because yeah. nobody yeah. else is. What I could see is them having an agreement to stay married for PR purposes, but everything being squashed and dealt with and she did her punishment. But his psychosis is enough to keep private eyes there. And I wouldn't even doubt that he would tell her that they're there because there's threats or anything. And just for the general protection. Of, I mean, when, when angry gay Pope came up to CST and did all that, that created a big stir. I mean, and they're around on the gates. So it's not to say that they're not there. And I know Rinder knows what's going on and everything. Um, and Tony Ortega goes up to the base with reporters from Australia, even though he's never been a Scientologist. Um, but yeah, there could be other things going on than what everybody thinks. Um, that's uh, that's all I wanted to point out because it's yeah. a critical thinking point. You know, I mean, we get so locked into one point of view that yeah, we I'm stop not. looking at other things, and you know, there could be consequences. It's like you. you, you did the RPF, or you went through lower, yeah, and then you I got did. out, and then you were back on staff and yep. on the post, and maybe yep. even a different org, right? Huh. That couldn't happen anywhere else, though. <laughs> exactly. You know, like, that's when it's like, oh, because it's his wife, like, eh, well, that's the other thing is the one thing you know about Scientology is they have to do exactly what the policy is. And the fact that she's still there, I, I, I'll tell you one thing, that all the time I was there, I never saw anybody unwillfully imprisoned. <laughs> How's that sound? <laughs> okay. You know, because yeah, yeah. when I eventually had enough of the RPF at in, I left. When they wouldn't let me leave through the front door, I left through the back door. You know, that's and right. that's 
like so eventually it, either it's going to subside it's not just this constant like oh you're going to leave we're going to stop you you're going to leave you're going to eventually she would just have to leave right and and she would either escape or she i mean that it's not what like and i think that was one of the problems with the aftermath and like they approached me for the shelly episode and I wasn't willing to say that it was a prison and that the bear things weren't for bears or livestock. It was to keep her in. And it's a, it's where they, David banishes his people. And it's just not my experience. It's just, I mean, I've seen people just get completely head on a pike and destroyed. And then a couple of years later, there they are as a tech page or working, you know, I, I don't know that she's running CST, but I know it was severely understaffed and nobody was qualified to go there and she had already cleared, you know, so I think it's one of those same things. It's like a clock's right twice a day. It's like these unfortunate, and he's just like, well, I'll send her up there. It solves a problem. Oh, how cool am I? You know? And it's like, and really 2Ds, you know, like love in the, in Sea Org is so different than love in the real world. Got that it, right. It's so Got different. That right. It's yep. like a consideration. It's not like, you know, I'm sure they loved each other as much as they were allowed to, but they love Scientology way more than they could ever allow themselves to love each other. And I don't think people understand that, like, honestly. I, uh, I think that's a very good point. And, and it's, I understand it because I was married in the Sea Org and I had a third generation wife who's still there right now. Yeah, right. me too. Exactly. And I love my first love, my first everything, but her first love was Scientology. And exactly. I looked at love, and maybe that's what helped get me out, is I looked at love as a union and a bond and something that you don't break. And she looked at it as your second dynamic. <laughs> you know? Like, exactly. and that was about it. So, exactly. And that's just All right, man. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's go ahead and wrap this up now. We've talked about this enough, I think. Certainly thrown out some food for thought, some, some fodder for people's cannons, I'm sure. And I want to be really super clear about something here. I am not refuting or saying that it's not true that Shelley's being held prisoner up there. I'm saying that there are other possible scenarios and it is in all of our best interests in the long run to look at what those scenarios might be so that we in the credit community don't end up with egg on our face at some point in the future. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying Leah's wrong, Mike's wrong, you know, Tony's wrong, everybody's wrong, and we got the truth. That's not what this, that's not what my critical thinking is is directed toward here, okay? So just to be super clear. <laughs> no, exactly. I, I mean, hey, it's all, it's all conjecture until it comes out. You know, exactly. we can all really use our experiences to kind of relay what we understand and if we're right we're right or if we've seen it we've seen it so exactly cool, man. all right man well thank you very much for being part of this uh being on my show here this week i appreciate it even with the rambunctious kids in the background yeah, you're no worries. <laughs> single dad today um all right so folks uh thanks for coming around and watching and listening um and let me just put this little plug in uh, if you see me wearing it, then it's available for you to purchase on my critical merchandise site. Check it out. Link below. Uh, okay, guys. I will see you guys next week. Leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the uh, comment section below or at sensiblyspeaking.com, and uh, we will check it out. Thanks for coming around. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.